Okay, chapter one. Like silent, hungry sharks that swim in the darkness of the sea, the German submarines arrived in the middle of the night. I was asleep on the second floor of my narrow, gabled greenhouse in Lowenstadt, on the island of Caracas, the largest of the Dutch islands just off the coast of Venezuela. I remember that on that moonless day, February 1942, they attacked a big lago oil refinery in Aruba, the sister island west of us. Then, they blew up six of our small lake takers, the tubby ones that sobered crude oil from Lake Maracaibo, and the refinery Kodakosh Petroleum Matajajwai to be made into gasoline, kerosene, and diesel oil. One German sub was even sighted off the side at dawn. So, when I woke up, there was much excitement in the city, which looks like part of Holland, except that all the houses are painted in soft colors, pinks and greens and blues, and there are no tanks. It was very hard to finish my breakfast because I wanted to go to Punda, the business district, the oldest part of town, and then to Fort Amsterdam, where I could look out to see. There was an enemy U-boat out there, wanted to see it and join the people in shaking a fist at it. I was not frightened, just terribly excited. War was something I'd heard a lot about, but had never seen. The whole world is at war, and now it had come to us in the warm blue Caribbean. The first thing that the mother said was, Philip, the enemy has finally attacked the island, and there won't be any school today. But you must say near home. Do you understand? I nodded, but I couldn't imagine that a shell from an enemy submarine would pick me out of a building or hit me. I was sitting on the famous pontoon bridge, remembering the ships way back in Chantecourt, who were along St. in a bay. So, later in the morning, when she was busy making sure that all the blackout curtains were in place and filling extra pots with water and checking our food supply, I stole down to the old fort with Henrik van Boven, my Dutch friend who was also 11. I had played there many times with Henrik and other boys that were a few years younger, imagining that we were defending Wellensite against pirates or even the British. They once stormed the island I knew long before. Sometimes they pretended we were the Dutch, going out on raids against the Spanish galleys. That had happened too. It was all so real that sometimes we could see the tall masted ships coming over from the horizon. Of course, they were only the tattered sailed native scooters from Venezuela, Aruba, or Bonaire, coming in with bananas, oranges, papayas, melons, and vegetables. But to us, they were always pirates, and we'd shout to the noisy black people aboard them. They'd laugh and go pow, pow, pow. The fort looks as though it came from a storybook, with gun ports off the high walls that faces the sea. For years, they guarded Willemstad, but this morning, it did not look like it from a storybook for at all. There were real soldiers with rifles, and we saw machine guns, and with binoculars had trained toward the white caps, and everyone was tense. They chased us away, telling us to go home. Instead, we went down the Nicaragua Emma Bridge, the famous Queen Emma Pontoon Bridge, which spans the channel that leads to the huge harbor, the Chautauqua. The bridge is built on foot so that it can open, swing open as ships pass in or out, and it connects Punda with Ultrabando which means other side, the other part of the city. The view from there wasn't as good as from before, but curious people were there too. Just looking strangely, no ships were moving in the channel. The veer boats, the ferry boats, that shuttled cars and people back and forth with the bridge was swung open and tied and empty. Even the native schooners were quiet against the docks in the channel, and the black men were not laughing and shouting their way as they usually did.
Henrik said, My father told me there was nothing left of the Luba. They hit St. Nicholas, you know. A real light taker is sunk, I said. I didn't know if that was true, but Henrik had an irritating way of sending officials since his father was connected with the government. His face was round and he was trembling. His hair was straw-colored and his cheeks were always red. Henrik was very serious about everything he said and did. He looked toward Fort Amsterdam. He said, I bet they put big guns up there. That was a safe bet. And I said, it won't be long until the Navy is here. Henrik looked at us. Our Navy? He meant the Netherlands Navy. No, I said, ours, meaning the American Navy, of course. His little navy was scattered all over the Germans to Holland. Henrik said quietly, our navy will come too. And I didn't want to argue with him. Everyone felt bad that Holland had been conquered by the Nazis. Then an army officer climbed out of a truck and told us all to leave the Queen Emma Bridge. He was very stern. He growled, don't you know that they could shoot a torpedo up here and kill you all? I looked out to the sea again. It was blue and peaceful, and a good breeze turned it up, making the lines of the white caps. White clouds drifted slowly over it, but I couldn't see the usual parade of ships coming toward the harbor. The stubby ones were the massive ones, with flags of many nations that steamed slowly up the bay to Shotagon, to low gas and oil. The sea was empty. There was not even a sail on it. We suddenly became frightened and ran home to the Charlotte section where we left. I guess my face was pale when I went into the house because my mother, who was in the kitchen, asked immediately, Where have you been? Good I went with Henrik. My mother got very upset. She grabbed my shoulder and shook it. I told you not to go there, Philip, she said angrily. We are at war, don't you understand? We just wanted to see the submarines, I said. My mother closed her eyes and pulled me up against her thin body. She was like that. One minute shaking me, the next holding me. The radio was on, and the voice said that 56 men had died on the lake tankers that were blown up, and that the governor of the Netherlands was in. He had appealed to Washington for help. There was no use in asking Amsterdam. I listened to the sorrowful sound of his voice until my mother's hands switched it off. Finally, she said, you'll be safe if you do what we tell you. Don't leave the yard again today. She seemed very nervous. But then, she was often nervous. My mother was always afraid that I'd fall off the seawall or tumble out of a tree or cut myself with a pocket knife. Henrik's mother wasn't that way. She laughed a lot and said, boys, boys, boys. But in the afternoon, my father, whose name was also Philip, Philip Enright, returned home from the refinery where he was working on a program to increase production of aviation gas. He'd been up there since 2 o'clock, my mother said, and please don't ask too many questions. They had phoned him in the morning to say that the Germans might attempt to shell the refinery in the oil storage tanks and he, he, that he must report to help fight the fires. I had never seen him so tired, and I didn't ask as many questions as I wanted to. During the past year, my father and I had done a lot of things together, fishing or sailing our small boat, or taking long hikes around Crump Bay or Sarome, or just going out on the Konoko, the countryside together. I knew a lot about trees and fish and birds, but now he always seemed busy. Even on a Sunday, he'd just shake his head and say, I'm sorry guys, I have to work. After he had his pint of cold jam, he had one every night in the living room after he came home. As will they shoot at us tonight? He looked at me gravely and answered, I don't know, Philip. They might. I want you and your mother to sleep down here tonight and not on the second floor. I don't think you're in any danger, but it's better to sleep down here. How many of them will be out there? Thought they might be like schools of fish, dozens maybe. I wanted to be able to tell Henrik exactly what my father knew about the submarines. He shook his head. No one knows, Philip, but 
There must be about three of them on the islands. The attacks were in three different places. They came all the way from Germany, he nodded, or from Basel in France, he said, loading his pipe. Why can't we go out and fight them? I asked. My father laughed sadly and tapped his long forefinger on my arm. You like that, wouldn't you? But we have nothing to fight them with, son. We can't go out motorboats and attack them with fishers. My mother came in from the kitchen to say, Stop asking so many silly questions, or I told you not to do that. Father looked at her strangely. He had always answered my questions. He has a right to know. He's involved here, Grace. My mother looked back at him. Yes, unfortunately. My mother, I knew, had not wanted to come from Caraco in the 1930s. But my father had argued that he needed further war effort, even though the United States was not at war with him. Royal Dutch Shell had borrowed him from the American company because he was an expert in refineries and gasoline production. But the moment she saw it, my mother decided she didn't like Caraco and often complained about the smell of gas and oil whenever the trade winds died down. It, it was very different in Virginia, where my father had been in charge of building a new refinery on the banks of the Elizabeth River. We'd walk, we'd lived in a small white house on an acre of land with many trees. My mother often talked about the house and the trees, about the change of seasons and the friends she had there. She said it was perfectly nice and safe in Virginia. My father would answer quietly, there's no place nice and safe right now. I remember the smells, with lightning bugs and honeysuckle smells. The cold winters when the fields would all be brown and would crackle under my feet. I didn't remember too much. I was only nine when we moved to the Caribbean. I guess my mother was homesick for Virginia, where no one talked Dutch, and there was no smaller gas and oil, and there weren't as many black people around. Now there was a cold silence between my mother and my father. Lately, it had been happening more and more and more often. She went back into the kitchen. I said to him, why can't they use aircraft and bomb the submarines? He was staring through, toward the kitchen and didn't hear me. I repeated it. He said, oh, yes, same answer, Philip. There are no fighting aircraft on there. To tell you the truth, we don't have any weapons. The K, Chapter 2. We finished dinner just as it was getting dark, and my father went outside to look at our house. He wanted to see if the blackout curtains were working. While my mother and I stood by each window, he called out if he saw the slightest crack of light. By then, the, by the governor's orders, not a light could shine anywhere on the whole island, he said. Then he walked back to the refinery. I crawled onto the couch downstairs about 9 o'clock, but I couldn't sleep. I kept thinking about those U-boats off our coast and those lake tankers with barefooted Chinese sailors on board. I guess I was just waiting for the U-boats to send a shell towards Willemsad. Then I began to wonder if the Germans would send soldiers too. At about 9.30, I sneaked out of bed, went into the tool house, and took a hatchet out. I put it under the couch. It was the only thing I could think of to use for fighting Germans. It must have been 11 o'clock when my father returned from the refinery to get all the flashlights we had in the house. They talked in low voices, but I could hear them. My mother said, it's too dangerous to stay here now. My father answered, 
Grace, you know I can't leave. She said, well, then Philip and I must go back. We'll go back to Norfolk, and we'll wait until the danger is over. I sat up in bed, unable to believe what I was hearing. My father said, there's more danger in the trip back unless you go by air than there is in staying here. If they do shell us, they won't hit Charlotte. Mother said sharply, you know I won't fly. I'd be frightened to death to fly. We'll talk about it later. My father sounded miserable. Soon afterward, he returned to the refinery again. I thought about leaving the island, and it saddened me. I loved the old fort, and the schooners, and the water market with the noisy chickens and squealing pigs, the black people shouting. I loved the kanoki with the giant cactus, the divvy divvy trees, their odd branches all over the leeward of the day, the beautiful sandy beach in West Point, and I'd miss Henrik Van Bowen. I also knew that Henrik and his mother would think us cowardly if we just left because a few German submarines were off Caraco. I was awake most of the night. The next morning, my father said that Chinese crews on the light tankers that shuttled crude oil across the sandbars at Maracaibo had refused to sail without naval exports. He said that our refinery would have to close down within a day and that meant precious gas and oil could not go to England or to General Montgomery in the African desert. For seven days, not a ship moved by the Queen Emma Bridge, and there was gloom over Willemson. The people had been very proud that the little islands of Aruba and Caraco were now among the most important islands in the world. The victory or defeat depended on them. They were angry with the Chinese crews, and on the third day, my father said that mutiny charges had been placed against them. But, he said, you must understand, they are very frightened, and some of the people who are angry with them would not sail the little ships either. He explained to me what it must feel like to ride the cargo of crude oil, knowing that a torpedo or shell could turn the whole ship into flames at any moment. Even though he wasn't a sailor, he volunteered to help man the lake takers. Soon, of course, we might also run out of the fresh water. It rains very little in the Dutch West Indies unless there is a hurricane, and water from a few wells has a heavy salt content. The big tankers from the United States or England always carry fresh water to us in ballast, and then it was distilled again so that we could drink it. But now all the big tankers were being held up in their ports until the submarines could be chased away. Toward the end of the week, we began to run out of fresh vegetables because the schoonermen were also afraid. Now, my mother talked constantly about the submarines, the lack of water, and the shortage of food. It almost seemed that she was using the war as an excuse to leave Caraco. The ships will be moving again soon, my father said confidently, and he was right. I think it was February 21st that some of the Chinese sailors agreed to sail to Lake Maracaibo. But on the same day, a Norwegian tanker headed for Willemstad was torpedoed off Caraco, and fear again swept over the old city. Without our ships, we were helpless. Then, a day or two later, my father took me into the Shotika when we were completing the loading of the SS Empire Turn, a big British tanker. She had machine guns fore and aft, one of the few armed ships in the harbor. Although the trade wind was blowing, the smell of gas and oil lay heavy over the Shotika. The other empty tankers were there, high out of the water, awaiting orders to sail once they had cargoes. The men on, the, on them were leaning over the rail, watching all the activity on the Empire Turn. 
I looked on as the thick hoses that were attached to her quivered when the gasoline was pumped into their tanks. The fumes shimmered in the air, and no, and one by one, they topped her tanks, look, loading them right to the brim and securing them for sea. No one said very much. With all that aviation gasoline around, it was dangerous. Then, in the afternoon, we went down to Punda and watched near the pontoon bridge as she steamed slowly down the St. Anna Bay. Many others had come to watch, too, even the governor, and we all cheered as she passed, setting out on her lonely voyage to England. There, she would help refuel the Royal Air Force. The sailors on the Empire Turn, which were painted a dull white but had rust streaks all over her, waved back at us and held up their fingers in a V for victory time. We watched until the pilot boat, having picked up the harbor pilot from the Empire Turn, began to race back to Willemstad. Just as we were ready to go, there was an explosion and we looked toward the sea. The Empire Turn had vanished on a wall of red flames and black smoke was beginning to boil into the sky. Someone screamed, there it is! We looked off to one side of the flames about a mile away and saw a black shape in the water very low. It was a German submarine, surfaced now to watch the ship die. A tug and several small motorboats headed out toward the turn, but it was useless. Some of the women cried at the sight of her, and I saw men, my father included, with tears in their eyes. It didn't seem possible that only a few hours before I had been standing on her deck. I was no longer excited about the war. I had began to understand that it meant death and destruction. That same night, my mother told my father, I'd taken Philip to Norfolk. I knew she had made up her mind. She was tired and disheartened over what happened to the Empire Turn. He did not say much, but I do remember him saying, Grace, I think you're making a mistake. You both are quite safe here in Charlotte. I wondered why he didn't simply order her to stay, but he wasn't that kind of man. The sunny days and dark, still nights passed slowly during March. The ships had begun to sail again, defying the submarines. Some were lost. Henrik and I often went down to Punda to watch them go out, hoping they would be safe. Neither my father nor my mother talked very much about a slave. I thought that when two American destroyers arrived, along with the Dutch cruiser Van Kinsenberg, to protect the leg tankers, mother would have changed her mind. It only made her more nervous. The w- one day in early April, she said, your father has finally secured passage for us. So today will be your last day in school here, Philip. We'll start packing tomorrow, and on Friday, we leave aboard a ship for Miami. Then we'll take the train to Norfolk. Suddenly, I felt hollow inside. Then I became angry and accused her of being a coward. She told me to go off to school. I said I hated her. All that day in school, I tried to think of what I could do. I thought about going somewhere and hiding until the ship had sailed. But on an island the size of Caraco, there was no place to hide. Also, I knew it would cause my father trouble. That night when he got home, I told him I wanted to stay with him. He smiled and put his long, thin arm around my shoulder. He said, no, Philip, I think it is best that you go with your mother. At a time like this, I can't be at home very much. His voice seemed sad, although he was trying to be cheerful. He told me how wonderful it would be to return to the U.S., how many things I had missed while we were off this island. I couldn't think of one. Then I talked to my mother about staying on Willemstad, and she became very upset with both of us. She said we didn't love her and began to cry. My father finally ended it by saying, Philip, the decision is made. 
you'll leave Friday with your mother. So I packed with your help and said goodbye to Henrik Van Bowen and all the other boys. I told them we'd be gone in just a short time, that we were going to visit my grandparents, my mother's parents, and Norfolk. But I had the feeling that it might be a very long time before I saw Caraco and my father again. Early Friday morning, we boarded the SS Hotel in St. Anna Channel. She was a, a small Dutch freighter with a high belt and stern, and a bridge house in the middle between two well decks. I had seen her often in St. Anna Bay. Usually she walked between Willetside, Aruba, and Panama. She had a long sack and always puffed thick black smoke. In her cabin, which was the starboard side and opened out to the boat deck, my father said, Well, you can rest easy, Philip. The Germans would never waste a torpedo on this old tub. Yet I saw him looking over at the lifeboats. Then he inspected the fire hoses on the boat deck. I knew he was worried. There were eight other passengers aboard, and they were all saying goodbye to their relatives, just as we were saying goodbye to my father. In the tradition, people bought flowers and wine. It was almost like sailing in the days before the war. And they told me. Father was smiling and very gay, but when the Hato's whistle blasted out three times, meaning it was time to go, he said goodbye to us between clenched teeth. I clung to him for a very long time. Finally, he said, take good care of your mother. I said I would. We sailed down the St. Anna Bridge, and the Queen Emma Bridge parted between us. Through watery eyes, I saw the fort and the old buildings of Puna and Ultramanda. Native schooners were beating in front of the sea. Then my mother pointed. I saw a tall man standing on the wall of Fort Amsterdam, waving at us. I knew it was my father. I'll never forget that tall, lonely figure standing on the seawall. The SS Hato took her first flight of open sea and began to pitch gently. We turned toward Panama as we had to make a call there before proceeding to Miami. Down on the well desk, fore and aft, were four massive pumps that had to be delivered to Colony the port at the Atlantic entrance to the Panama Canal. I stayed out on the deck for a very long time, sitting by the lifeboat, looking at Caraco, feeling lonely and sad. Finally, my mother said, come inside now. The K, Chapter 3. We were tor torpedoed at about three o'clock in the morning on April 6, 1942, two days after leaving Panama. I was thrown from a top bunk and suddenly found myself on my hands and knees on the deck. We could hear the ship's whistle blowing constantly and there were sounds of metal wrenching and much shouting. The whole ship was shuddering. It felt as though we'd stopped and were dead in the water. My mother was very calm, not at all like she was at home. She talked quietly while she got dressed, telling me to tie my shoes and be certain to carry my wool sweater and to put on my leather jacket. Her hands were not shaking. She helped me put on a life jacket and then put hers on saying, now remember everything that we were told about abandoning ship. The officers had held drills every day. As she was speaking, there was another violent explosion. We were thrown against the cabin door, which the steward had warned us not to lock because it might become jammed. We pushed it open and went out to the boat deck, which was already beginning to tilt. Everything was bright red, and there were great crackling noises. The entire after part of the ship was on fire, and the sailors were launching the lifeboat that was on our deck. Steam lines had broken, and the steam was hissing out. 
heat from the fire washed over us. When the lifeboat had been swung out, the captain came down from the bridge. He was a small, wiry, white-haired man and was acting the way I'd been told Captain should act. He stood by the lifeboat in the fire's glow, very alert and giving orders to the crew. He was carrying a briefcase and a navigation instrument, a new to be a sextant. On the other side of the, grip of the ship, another lifeboat was being launched. Near us, two sailors with axes chopped out lines, and two big life rafts plunged toward the water, which looked black except for the pools of fire from burning fuel oil. The captain shouted, Get a move on, passengers, into the ship! Tins of lubricating oil in the afterholds had ignited and were exploding, but the ones forward had not been exposed to the fire. A sailor grabbed my mother's hand and helped her in, and then I felt myself being passed into the hands of the sailor on the boat. The other passengers were helped in, and someone yelled, Lower away! At that moment, the hot tail lurched heavily, and something happened to the boat falls. The boat the bow tilted downward, and the next thing I knew, we were on the water. I saw my mother near me and yelled to her. Then something hit me from above. A long time later, four hours I was told, I opened my eyes to see a blue sky above. It moved back and forth, and I could hear the slap of water. I had a terrible pain in my head. I closed my eyes, thinking maybe I was dreaming. Then a voice said, Young boss, how are you feeling? I turned my head. I saw a huge, very old Negro sitting on a raft next to me. He was ugly. His nose was flat and his hair was broad, and his face was broad. His head was a mass of wiry gray hair. For a moment, I could not figure out where I was or who he was. Then I remember seeing him working with the deck gang of the hotel. I looked around for my mother, but there was no one else on the raft. Just this huge Negro, myself, and a big black and gray cat that was licking his haunches. The Negro said, You want a most terrible crap on the undead? Yep, boss. A uh, strong back lands off in your head, and I haul you above this staff. He crawled over toward me. His face couldn't have been blacker, or his teeth whiter. They made an alabaster trench in his mouth, and his pink purple lips peeled over them like the meat of a conch shell. He had a big welt like a scar on his left cheek. I knew he was a West Indian. I had seen many of them in Willemstad, but he was the biggest one I'd ever seen. I sat up asking, where are we? Where is my mother? The Negro shook his head with the run. I truly believe your mother is safe and sound on a raft like this. Or maybe they hardly onto the boat. I truly believe that. Then he smiled at me, his face becoming less terrifying. As to our very location, I must guess we are somewhere around the cave. Somewhere maybe 15 latitude and 18 long. We should have packed them till that boat transferred so he could split the very hole. Four minutes up down at the most. I looked all around us. There was nothing but blue sea with occasional patches of orange-brown seaweed. No sign of the hotel, or rafts, or boats. Just the sea and a few birds that wheeled over it. The lonely sea and the sharp pins in my head and the knowledge that I was alone here with a black man instead of my mother made me break into tears. Finally, the black man said, looking at my bloodshot eyes, now, young boss, I must feel like that my own son, Timothy, but would be no particular use to do that, eh? His voice was rich calypso, soft and musical, the words rubbing off like velvet. I felt a little better, but my head ached fiercely. He nodded toward the cat. This is Stu, the cook's cat. He climbed on the raft, and I had not hard to draw him off. 
Dude was busy licking. He got the law over himself from the water. I looked closer at the black man. He was extremely old, yet he seemed powerful. Muscles rippled over the ebony of his arms and around his shoulders. His chest was thick, and his neck was the size of a small tree trunk. I looked at his hands and feet. The skin was alligator and cracked, tough from age and walking barefoot on the hot decks of scooters and priders. He saw me examining him and gently and said gently, Put your head down, you boss, and that's a while longer. Do not look direct at the sun. It's too powerful. I felt seasick and called to the side to vomit. He came up beside me, holding my head in his great clamshell hand. It didn't matter at the moment that he was black and ugly. He murmured, just be good, just be good. When it was over, he helped me back to the center of the raft, saying, it was natural for you to do this. Take the shock of having all dangerous, terrible things open. I then watched as he used his powerful hands and arms to rip up the board from the outside edges of the raft. He pounded them back together on cleats, forming two triangles. Then he jammed the bases into slots between the raft boards. He stripped off his shirt and his pants, then demanded mine. I didn't know what happened to my leather jacket or my sweater, but soon we had a flimsy shelter from the burning sun. Crawling under it to a sprawl beside me, he said, We have real good luck, young boss. The water cag did not bust when the raft was launched. And we have a few biscuits, some chocolate, and the matches in the tinted stuff. So, we have rare good luck, he grinned at me. I was thinking that our luck wasn't so good. I was thinking about my mother on another boat or raft, not knowing I was alright. I was thinking about my father back in Wellington. He was terrible. It was terrible not to be able to tell him where I was. He'd have boats and planes out within hours. I guess the big Negro saw the look on his face. He said, do not be this bad young boss. Someone will find us. Many school will go this way, and this house will be the ship tacked to Jamaica and on. After a bit, lured by the bobbing of the raft and by the soft, pleasant sound of the sea against the oil barrel floats, I went to sleep again. I was tired and my head still ached. The piece of timber must have struck a, gl- a glancing blow on the left side. When I next awakened, it was late afternoon. The sun had edged down and the breeze across us was cool, but I felt very hot and the pain had not gone away. The Negro was sitting with his back across me, humming something in Calypso. His back on a great wall of black flesh and I saw a cruel scar on his shoulder. I sat I asked, what's your name? Hearing my voice, he turned with the wide grin. Ah, you are back with me. It's been long since these many hours. I repeated, what is your name? My answer, Timothy. Your last name? I, he laughed. I have a one name, this Timothy. Where is Philip and right, Timothy? My father had always taught me to address anyone I took to be an adult as Mr. But Timothy didn't seem to be Mr. Besides, he was black. He said, I knew a Philippe who fished out of St. John. What an outrageous man he was. He laughed deep inside himself. I asked him for a drink of water. He nodded agreeably, saying, The Central March. He lifted a hinge section of the raft flooring and drew out the keg, which was about two feet long. It was a tin cup lashed into him. Can I put out this little girl? He said, Tis best to have only an outrageous small amount, just enough for what the time. Why? I asked. This, that is a large bag. He scanned the barren sea and then looked back at me. His old eyes drove over. The left gag have a way of losing it very size. You said we were going to be picked up soon, and reminded him. Ah, yes, uh, but we must be wise about what we have. 
I dragged the tiny amount of water he poured me out and asked for more. He regarded me silently, then his eyes quenching. A very little more, young boss. My lips were parched and my throat was dry. I wanted a whole cup. Please fill it up. Timothy poured only a few drops of the water. That isn't enough, I complained. I felt I could drink three cups of it. But he pressed the wooden stopper firmly back into the keg in the room. I said, I must have water, Timothy. I'm very hot. Without answering, he opened the trap in the raft and secured the keg again. It was then that I began to learn what a stubborn old man he was. I began to dislike Timothy. Young boss, he said, coming back from under the shelter. Maybe before the night before, a schooner will pass this way. And if that happens, you might drink the whole keg. But the schooner will not pass this way, so we must make our water last. I said defiantly, a schooner will find us, and my father has shipped with the air force. Without even glancing at me, he said, true, young boss. Then he closed his eyes and would not speak to me anymore. He just sprawled out, a bound of silent black flesh. I couldn't hold back the tears anymore. I'm sure he heard me, but he didn't move a muscle of his face. Neither did he look up when I crawled out from under the shelter to get as far away from his eyes as could. I stayed on the edge of the rock for a long time, thinking about home and rubbing Sue Cat's back. Although I hadn't thought that so before, I was now beginning to believe that my mother was right. She didn't like them. She didn't like it when Henrik and I would go to the state in a bay and play near the scooters. But it was always fun. The black people would always laugh at us or toss us bananas or papayas. She'd say what she knew where we'd been. They are not the same as you, Philip. They are different and they live differently. That's the way it must be. Henrik, who'd grown up in Caraca with them, couldn't understand why it is not about this way. I yelled over at him, You're saving all the water for yourself! I don't think he was asleep, but he didn't answer. When the sky began to turn a deep blue, Timothy roused himself and looked at me. He said, rejected a friendly glance at me, if luck be the flying fish will drop on the back. We can save a few biscuit by eating the fish. No water is in the fish. I was hungry, but the thought of eating raw fish didn't appeal to me. I said nothing. Just before the dark, they began skimming across the water, their short wood-like fins taking them on flights of 20 or 30 feet, something more. A large one shot out of the water, skimmed towards us, and slammed onto the rock point. Timothy grabbed it, shouting happily. He ripped its head with his knife handle and tossed it beneath the shelter. Soon enough came aboard, not so large. Timothy grabbed it too. Before a total darkness, he had skinned them, deftly cutting me from their side. He handed me the two largest pieces. Eat them, he ordered. He looked at me in the faded light and said softly, We will not have any of the food today. You best eat them, young boss. With that, he pressed a piece of fish against his teeth, sucking it noisily. Yes, they were different, they ate raw fish. I turned away from him over on my stomach. I thought about Crocker, who had been safe, about our gable house in Charlotte and about my father. Suddenly, I loved my mother because I was on a raft with this stubborn old black man. It was all her fault. She'd wanted to leave the island. I blurted out. I wouldn't even be here with you if it wasn't for my mother. I knew Timothy was staring at me through the darkness when he said, She started this terrible war, young boss. He was a shadowy shape across the raft. Four, the K. Total darkness blotted out the sea, and it became cold and damp. Timothy took the shelter down, and we both pulled our shirts and pants back on. They were stiff from salt and felt clammy. The wind picked up 
blowing fine shale spray across the raft. Then the stars came out. We stayed in the middle of the raft, side by side, as it drifted aimlessly over the sea. Sukat rubbed his back against the bottoms of my feet and then curled up down there. I was glad because he was warm. I was thinking that it would be very strange for me, a boy from Virginia, to be like next to this giant Negro out on the ocean. And I guess maybe Timothy was thinking the same thing. Once our bodies touched, we both drew back, but I drew back faster. In Virginia, I knew they'd always lifted their sections of tap in us in arms. A few times I'd gone down the shack, through the shacks of colored town with my father. They sold spicy crabs in one shack, I remember. I saw them mostly in summer, down by the river, fishing or swimming naked. But I don't really know any of them. And in Willemstad, I didn't know them very well either. Henrik van Boven did, though, and he was much easier with them. I asked, Timothy, is this your home? St. Thomas, he said. Chalitamali on St. Thomas, he added. To the Virgin Island. Then you are American, I said. I remembered from school that they bought the Virgin from Denmark. He laughed. I suppose, young boss. I never gave it what thought, though. I sell all the island. I will have Venezuela, Colombo, Panama. I just never gave it what thought that I was American. I said, your parents were African, Timothy? He laughed low and soft. Young boss, you want me to say true when I come to Africa? You say what you want. It was just that Timothy looked very much like the men I'd seen in jungle pictures. Flat nose and heavy lips. He shook his head. I have no recollection of anything except these islands. This beard outrageous. What? I do not remember anything about the place called Africa. I didn't know if he was telling the truth or not. He looked pure African. I said, what about your mother? Now there was a deep laughter in his voice. This is even more outrageous. I do not remember a father or my mother. I was raised by a woman called Hannah Gums. Then you were an orphan. I said, I guess, young boss, I guess. He was chuckling to himself, rich and deep. I looked over towards him, but again, he was just a shadowy shape, a large round. How old are you, Timothy? That fact is also very mysterious. No more than 60, could the muscle in my leg be speaking to me, come in plain all the time. Possibly too, I do not know exact. I was amazed that any man shouldn't know his own age. I was most certain now that Timothy had indeed come from Africa, but I didn't tell him that. I said, I'm almost 12. I wanted him to know I was almost 12, so he would stop treating me as if I were half that age. That is a very important age, Timothy agreed. Now, you must get some natural sleep. Tomorrow must be a very long day, and we have much to do. I laughed. There were, there we were on a bucking raft with nothing to do except watch for schooners or aircraft. What do we, what do we have to do? I asked. He, his eyes groped through the darkness for mine. He came up on his elbows. Stay alive, young boss. That's what we have to do. Soon it became very cold, and I began shivering. Part of it, the coldness, but there was also fear. If the raft tipped over, the sharks would slash at us, I knew. My head was aching violently again. During the day, the pain had been dull, but now it was shooting along both sides of my head. Once, sometime during the night, I felt a horny hand on my forehead. Then he shifted my body, placing it on the other side of him. He muttered, Young boss, the wind does shift. You'll be warmer on this side. I was still shivering, and soon he gathered me against him, and Sukat came back to a warm ball against my feet. I can now smell Timothy, tucked up back against him. He didn't smell like my father or mother. Father always smelled of bay rum, the shaving lotion he used, and mother smelled of some kind of perfume or cologne. 
Timothy smelled different and strong, like black men who worked on the decks of the tankers when they were loading. After a while, I didn't mind the smell because Timothy's back was very warm. The raft plunged across the light swells throughout the long night. I do not think he slept that much during the day, during the night, but I'd been told that old people didn't sleep much anyway. I woke up when there was a pale band of light to the east, and Timothy said, You fell well, young boss? How it did? Still hers, I admitted. Timothy said, A crack on dead takes a few days to go away. He opened a trap on the raft to pull out the water keg and the tin containing the biscuits, the chocolate squares, and dry matches. I sat up feeling dizzy. He allowed me half a cup of water and two hard biscuits, then fed Stewcat with the wedge of leftover flying fish. We ate in silence as the light crept steadily over the smooth, oily sea. The wind had died and already the sun was beginning to scorch. Timothy chewed slowly on half a biscuit. Today, young boss, a schooner will pass. I'd bet the drum on that. I hope so, I said. I do not think we are so far from Providencia and San Andres. I looked hard at Timothy. Are they islands? He nodded. I kept looking at him. It seemed like there was a film, a haze separating us. I rubbed my eyes and opened them again. But the haze was still there. I glanced over at the red ball of sun now clear in the horizon it seemed dim i said i think there's something wrong with my eyes timmy said i warned you you looked direct at the sun yesterday yes that was it i looked at the sun too much today timothy said do not even look at the water the glare is bad too he went about setting up triangles for our shelter and i took off my clothes after he draped my pants in the shirt, I got under the shelter. The pain in my head was almost unbearable now, and I remember moaning. Timothy tore off a piece of his shirt from the shelter roof, soaked it in fresh water, and placed it over my eyes. There was worry in his voice as he talked. A while later, I took the cloth off my clothes, I mean, of my eyes, and looked up. The inside of our shelter was shadowy and dark, but the pain had begun to gone away. It doesn't hurt as much anymore, I said. See, it just takes time, young boss. I put the cool cloth back over my eyes and went to sleep again. When I woke up, it was night, yet the air felt hot and the breeze that came across the raft was warm. I lay there thinking. What time is it? I asked. About ten. At night? There was puzzlement in his voice. Tis day. I put my hand in front of my face. Even in the very blackest night, you can see your own hand, but I could not see mine. I screamed to Timothy. I'm blind! I'm blind! What? His voice was a frightened roar. Then I knew he was bending over me. I felt his breath in my face. He said, young boss, you cannot be blind. He pulled me roughly from the shelter. Look at the sun, he ordered. His hands pointed my face. I felt the strong warm against it, but everything was black. The silence seemed to last forever as he held my face toward the sun. Then a long shuddering sigh came from his great body. He said very gently, now young boss, you must lie down and rest. What does happen would go away. These are natural, temporary, but his voice was hollow. I got down on the hot boards, blinking my eyes again and again, trying to lift the curtain of blackness. I touched them. They did not feel any different. Then I realized the pain had gone away. It had gone away, but left me blind. I could hear my voice saying far off, I don't feel any pain, Timothy. The pain has gone away. I guess he was trying to think it all out. In a few minutes, he said, once, over down by Barbados, a man had an outrageous track on the head was in a boom ship. This man went down too. Three whole days, day, saw night. Then it threw it away. Do you think that will happen to me? I think that very true, young boss.
Then he became very quiet. After a moment, lying there in the darkness, hearing the creak of the raft and feeling its motion, it all hit me. I was blind and we were lost at sea. I began to crawl, screaming for my mother and my father, but felt his hard hands on my voice, on my arms. He held me tight and said low and soft, Embossed, embossed. He kept repeating it. I never forgot the first hour of knowing I was blind. I was so frightened that it was hard for me to breathe. It was as if I'd been put something. It was as if I'd been put inside something that was all dark and I couldn't get out. I remember that at one point my fear turned to anger. Anger at Timothy for not letting me stay in the water with my mother, and anger at him because I was on the raft. I began hitting him, and I remember him saying, "If that won't make you feel better, go ahead." After a while, I felt very tired and fell back into the hot boards. The K, Chapter Five. I guess it was around noon on the third day aboard the raft when Timothy said tensely, "I heard a motor. A motor? Shh." I listened. Yes, there was a far-off engine sound coming in faintly above the slap of the sea. Then I can hear Timothy moving around. "Tis an aircraft," he said. My heart began to pound. They were looking for us. I thought around, then crawled from beneath the shelters to look toward the sound, but I could see nothing. I heard the hinges on the trapdoor creak. Timothy said quietly, as though afraid to chase the sound away. It's knowing what we're doing about seeing smoke. I do believe. He ripped down one of the triangle legs, and I heard Cliff staring. Soon he said, "We made the Dutch young boss. The man up there be seeing smoke all day and all day." The faint drone of the aircraft seemed closer now. In a moment, I smelled cloth burning, and I knew he was holding a piece of wrapped wood toward the sky. He shouted, "Look down here!" But the, already the drone seemed to be fading. Timothy yelled, "I see it! I see it! Wait a pause!" I tried to make my eyes cut through the darkness. Is it coming our way? Don't know, don't know, young boss. Timothy replied anxiously. I said, "I can't hear it now." There was nothing in the air but the sea sound. Timothy shouted, "Look down here! There is a raft with a little blind boy and old man in stuka. Look down here, I tell you." The drone could not be heard. Just a slap of the water and the sound of light wind making our shelter flap. We were alone again on the ocean. After a moment of silence, I heard the sizzle of water as Timothy downed the torch. He sighed deeply. I'll be ready next time for two. Let the torch die. Then I'll be ready. Soon he sat down beside me. Tis a good thing not to hurt us to start over this. We are edging into the aircraft attack, same as the ship they done. I said nothing, but put my head down on my knees. Do not be disheartened, young boss. Today we will be found to be true. But the long hot day was passing without a sight of anything. I knew Timothy was constantly scanning the ocean. It was also calm now that the raft didn't even seem to be drifting. Once I crawled over to the edge to touch the water and felt Timothy right behind me. He said, "Careful, young boss. The shark always hungry, always waiting for the man to fall overboard." Drawing back from the edge, I asked, "Are there many here?" "Yes, many here. But long as we have our raft, they do not miss us." 
was standing on the sea while at Willemstad. Sometimes I'd see their fins in the water. I'd also seen them on the dock at Reiterkade Market, their mouths open and their sharp teeth grinning. I went back under the shelter, spending a long time rubbing Stewcat. He purred and pushed himself along my body. I was glad that I had seen him and had seen Timothy before going blind. I knew how awful it would have been to awaken on the raft and not know what they looked like. Timothy must have been sitting over us, for he said, The God's not good luck. After a moment, he added, But to God, death of a God is very bad luck. I don't think Stu has bad luck, I said. I'm glad he's here with us. Timothy didn't answer, but I turned back. I guess to watch the sea again. I could imagine those bloodshot eyes set in the massive scarred face sweeping over the sea. Tell me what's out there, Timothy. I said, it was very important to know what now. I wanted to know everything that was out there. He laughed, just miles of blue water, miles of blue water. Nothing else? He realized what I meant. Oh, to be sure, young boss, I see a fish jump way forward. That means large fish chase them. Then a while back, a turtle passed us port side, but too far out to reach back. His eyes were becoming mine. What's in the sky, Timothy? In the sky? He searched it. No clouds, young boss, just blue like twas yesterday. But now and then, I see a petrel. While ago, a booby. I laughed for the first time all day. It was a funny name for a bird. A booby? Timothy was quite serious. This booby I saw was a blue face, maybe nesting outside on your bed. Maybe not. They'd be feeding up that fish. I'd still watching the birds because they tell us we're very close to the shore. How does a booby look, Timothy? Nothing much, he, he replied. They're like a chuck lad. Chuck beat, mostly white on its body. I tried to picture it, wondering if I'd ever see a bird again. Chapter 6 In the early morning, I knew it was early because the air was so cool and there was dampness on the boards of the raft. I heard Timothy shout, I see an island too! In wild excitement, I stumbled up and fell overboard. I went under the water, yelling for him, then came up gasping. I heard a splash and knew he was in the water too. Something slapped up against my leg, and I thought it was Timothy. I knew how to swim, but didn't know which way to go. So I was treading water. Then I heard Timothy's frightened roar, SHOOT! And he was thrashing near me. He grabbed my hair with one hand and used his other arm to drag me back toward the raft. I had turned on my face and was trying to hold my breath. Then I felt my body being thrown and I was back on the boards of the raft, gasping for air. I knew that Timothy was still in the water because I could hear him splashing and thirsting. The raft tilted down suddenly on one side. Timothy was back aboard. Panting, he bent over me. He yelled, Damn, Bowman! I told you about the sharks! I knew Timothy was in a rage. I could hear his heavy breathing and knew he was staring at me. Shark go around us all the time, he roared. I said, I'm sorry. Timothy said, On this lap you call, young boss. You hear me? I nodded. His voice was so thick with anger, but in a moment, after he took several deep breaths, he asked, You all right, young boss? I guess he sat down beside me to rest. His breath, his breathing was still heavy. 
Finally, he said, Miranda, quick out there. We'd both forgotten about the island. I said, Timothy, we're, Timothy, you saw an island. He laughed. Yes, the island, there it is. I said, where? Timothy answered scornfully. There, look, man, look. Angrily, I said to him, I can't see. He kept forgetting that. His voice was low when he said that. Yes, young boss, that be true. In all this harassment with the shark, I did forget. Then I felt his hands on my shoulders. He twisted them. That direction, young boss. Straining to look where he me pointing, I asked, Are there any people on it? It's a very small island. They just know. I repeated, Are there any people on it? I thought they could contact my father and then send for help. Timothy answered honestly, No, young boss, no people. People not living on the island that has no water. No people, no water, no food, no phones. It was not any better than the raft. In fact, it might be worse. How far away are we? About two miles. Maybe we could stay on the raft. A schooner will see us or an airplane. Timothy said positively. No, we bet off on land and didn't in that way. The dog you're running with us. His voice was happy. He wanted to be off the sea. I was certain my father had planes and ships out looking for us. I said, Timothy, the Navy is searching for us. I know. Timothy did not answer me. He just said, This is a pretty thing to be sure. I see a white beach and behind that, lots of grape bushes. Then under here, some palm. Maybe plenty, plenty palm. I was sure he couldn't even see that far. I said, Timothy, wouldn't it be better if we stayed on the raft and found a big island with people on it? He ignored me. Finding the night, I saw the soft washing right over banks of the boat. But did not awaken you, young boss. I knew we'd be getting near the case. I said, I don't want to go on that island. I don't think there was anyone on earth as stubborn as old Timothy. There was steel in his voice when he answered. We'll be going on that island, young boss. That's be true. But he knew how I thought now because he added, From this island, we will get help. Be true, I swear.